The field that I want to talk to you about today, we have dubbed biology of extinction. And interestingly, it's only 200 years ago, it's 1799, that for the first time mankind understood that there were actually creatures living on this planet that have lived before our times and we don't see anymore. Because at this time, if you really think yourself in the understanding in the time uh, uh, of the um, 18th century, people believed that whatever lives on that planet has been there for the entire time since the creation. And it was a find of a mammoth somewhere in Siberia that a botanist of the Tsar in St. Petersburg realized that the remainders of what has been presented to him is actually an elephant. And of course, he knew that elephants are supposed to be in Africa and they're supposed to be somewhere in India as the Indian elephants and that uh, elephants have nothing to do in Siberia. And from this, he instantly recognized that this must have been an animal that has been around and is no longer about. And this gave us, in the end, the idea of this biology of extinction. And most people might know mammoths are extinct, but they will not know that mammoths went extinct three times. Or there are at least three series of extinction. One was 45,000 years ago. That's an extinction that we only learned about through our work. Then there's the big one, 10,000 years ago, after the last ice age. This is the one we all know about. And then there's an extinction 3,500 years ago that very few of us know about. These are mammoths that got trapped on islands, Aleutian Islands, but also islands north of uh, Siberia. And as uh, the sea levels were rising after the last ice age, those animals got trapped. And then there's an effect that if a mammal is trapped on an island, it shrinks. It's uh, called an island dwarfism. And so this small mammoths, some of them only like a shoulder height of three feet, they were around. So this is exactly what uh, we all want to have back, right? Uh, a three foot tall mammoth. And so at the time, the Egyptians were building the pyramids. There were still mammoths to be found in islands in northern Siberia. So we barely missed them. This is, I guess, the message that I, I want to give you here. Excuse me? How do you get the um, It's actually quite easy because uh, from the skeleton, it's very unique. Uh, the, the shape of the skull, for example, but also the molars in, in its mouth. You can show me a single molar, even not being an expert in anatomy, and I can just instantly tell you whether this is an African, an Indian elephant, a mammoth, or a mastodon. So they're very clear. Um, things. And also you will see that those mammoths have been found not only as bones, but as frozen corpses. And so we even know that these animals had a swart of fat layers underneath their skin that, for example, the African mammoths would not have. And this tells us that this truly was a polar, an Arctic animal. This big event that we don't quite understand what it is 10,000 years ago, it also wiped out the woolly rhino. 
this is an extinction, this is the big extinction that still is the major concern for us that we need to understand today. Living in a world of changing climate might bring so dramatic changes with it that it had wiped out all the large animals in the Northern Hemisphere. And we today, we know it and we pretend it cannot happen to us. The MOA, 500 years ago, so the MOA was just fine before humans arrived about uh, a thousand years, 1500 years ago in New Zealand. And within 500 years, the MOA was wiped out. And this tells us two things. First of all, the MOA was a very delicious bird. We still see the chew marks on the bones of the MOA. The other one that it tells you, we as a species have no sense on how to maintain biological resources. We'll eat them up until the last MOA is gone. What happened in our times is the Silocene. So this is the, the, the first extinct species where I can even offer you a photograph because it went extinct in 1936. And again, we did absolutely not care. The only worry that we had as scientists at this time is shoot one for my museum as long as they're still around. That was pretty much how things were treated uh, in the beginning 20 centuries. And in the end of my talk, I will tell you the story about the Tasmanian devil. And then I will leave it to your judgment whether we really have learned from all this. So what we're trying to do is the, the principal approach of our research is we want to look in the past and understand what happened, why those species went away. And then hopefully, if we prove a worthy species that is smart enough to take out, not only look out for ourselves, but also our environment, that we can find the right measures to prevent the extinction of the Tasmanian devil. I won't go through this in detail, but over the last years, there are different molecular techniques that we can use to find out what the genetic makeup of those animals has been. And uh, for that, you need to understand uh, how a cell, so this is a mammalian cell, so our own cells would very much look like that. The one thing I want to uh, uh, draw your attention to is just look from the entire space, that uh, the volume that a cell has, how much space it reserves for the nucleus, where it stores the information, and every single cell of, uh, our, in our body has, so to speak, its own hard drive, where the entire information for the organism is stored in every single cell. And if we break that nucleus open, you will see the chromosomes. So there are two copies, one from father, one from mother. And we have 23 of those, plus what determines whether we are a male or a female. And so this is the set. And those taken together is about 3 billion base pairs of information. And you can translate those base pairs directly into bits. So if you have one of those fancy uh, smartphones, they are smart enough that you could, uh, like on, on even the smallest iPhone, could store your, the information of your human, human genome three times. And the size of a bacterial genome, for example, is not more than an MP3 song on, on, on your iPod just to give you a sense for the amount of information that we deal with. So this is very doable. And then there is not all the information is stored in the nucleus. There are also uh, cellular organelles here called mitochondria. And they have their own small 
cellular genome. And this is so small and circular because it originated from bacteria many hundred millions of years ago that uh, went into uh, a, a, um, a eukaryotic cell. And uh, the most important factor that we need to remember is for every nucleus that we have in a cell, we have about 1,000 copies of the small circular genome. And this is why it makes it easier for us as scientists that we find it's more likely if you have uh, badly battered DNA, like in a bone that has been lying out for thousands or ten thousands of years, somewhere in the soil or on the surface, all you uh, most likely will do is you find some remnants of the circular molecule here. And this is something we did in 2005 that using this new um, uh, revolutionary sequencing I will tell you about in a minute. And you can see this is the circular molecule and every part of that, that black bits you see here is a piece of that genome. And so imagine you take a mirror and you drop it onto the floor. It shatters in a gazillion pieces. And pretty much our task is to get the puzzle back together and then reconstruct that we can say, yes, this has been a mirror. And the way that we do this is we not read the pieces from a single mirror, but we will do this with many mirrors. And in the end, if we always come back and say this was like a square thing that was reflective, then um, it allows us. And you can see here that really the, the way to do this, because we are not capable of reading that circle in, in one round, because it uh, has been broken into pieces, we have to do it bit by bit by bit. And then we use a computer, and the computer helps us with the puzzle, and we put the puzzle back together. There's a small part here that has usually be used in, in those uh, examples. And the big difference that we're doing is instead of only looking off this tiny little portion here, this is the work of, I would say, the last 15, 20 years. We now want to look at this entire genome. And the way that we do this is uh, what makes the mammoths different from many of the, the other um, uh, animals that can be found is that we not only work with bones, but that together with those mammoths, they found a lot of hair. Um, yeah, you've lost me pretty far back there, but at the last picture that you have, is each one of those little squares specific and different from yes, the yes. other it, one? Yes, yes. It is a unique puzzle piece. Okay. You cannot force into a wrong position in. Yes. So the most striking thing about the mammoth was not only it was big and mighty, it was also very frequent. If you were to find the mammoth bone in your garden tomorrow and you bring it to the museum, they will tell you, take it home. We don't want it. Because there are so, there are so many and also because it's such a big uh, animal. And so this makes it very good for us. It's not like we're drilling holes in a precious Neanderthal bone. This is, there's plenty of material. And what is very striking is that the mammoth was found as a tried mummy. So the um, people, the indigenous people living in Siberia, they believed that these were underworld creatures. They were living like rats or moles deep in the ground. And when they surface and they come out to the surface and they're hit by sunlight, they die because 
they are creatures from the underworld. And if you think about it, it's a perfect explanation if you have never in your life seen a mammoth and you don't know what it is. So we have those animals. They're big and they're hairy. And one of the, the really transforming um, ideas was that we walk away from using bones for our research and we'd rather try to find hair. And this ball of hair that you see here, that it might be a story worth telling, is, was actually bought over the internet. So instead of going through all of this, so we made sure that this company had the proper permits, that we are not paying the Russian mafia, in, which is a big problem, that they provide samples and then people buy them on eBay and they don't have a track record whether this is legitimate to do or not. We made sure that this was legitimate. We wouldn't even know whether it was legitimate hair. That we only find out through the sequencing. Many of the hair samples that we had was something else, musk ox or uh, woolly rhino or whatever. So we got this. This ball of hair that you see here was the one that we used for sequencing. And the big trick that you can see here, this is a cut through a mammoth hair. And what we have came up with is we first take the hair, we shampoo it to get all the dirt out, and then we bleach it. And this is not to uh, make a blonde mammoth, but this is rather we want to decontaminate. We want to destroy all the contaminating bacteria, fungi, viruses that have for tens of thousands of years have been sitting all over this. And the discovery truly was that what makes the hair shaft, the keratin, is like a biological plastic. And this biological plastic encases the mammoth DNA. And so what we do after we, we did our shampooing and bleaching, we dissolve the biological plastic, uh, plastic and the DNA pours out. And this is then the DNA that allows us to get our puzzle pieces. Once we showed that this works, this was so revolutionary that all the museum curators in their world would send us the mammoth hair that they had. And within no time, we had a large collection of mammoth hair. And some of them, if you look here, even sent their last hair that they had, a single one. And um, I will show you in a minute that for a majority of those samples, we got sequences. And before we get there, I now want to show you, instead of only looking at a tiny little fragment in, in the genome of an organism, we are now in a situation, each of those towers that you see here is tens of millions of those puzzle pieces that the computer has put together for us. And you can now say that this is the entire distance that we need to, uh, to cover. And we are now in a situation where we have so much data that we can truly say with confidence that what we're looking at is right. And as unbelievable as it sounds, it all starts by looking at a single DNA molecule. So this is the big revolution that I'm telling you about, is that we can now work from single DNA molecules and then uh, propagate them and then eventually using uh, machines like you see here. Each of them is about a half million dollars. We can sequence entire genomes. And interestingly, when this instrument was presented for the first time in 2004, Penn State was the fourth site in the world to have one of those uh, and the first university in the world to have such a, an instrument and the first 
research paper that described what you can do with such an instrument was actually sequencing mammoth DNA. It was not what you would expect you would sequence a bacterium or a human, it was mammoth. And now, a few years later, we have machines that can do this much, much faster, much, much cheaper. And if any of you are familiar with Moore's Law, Moore's Law says every 18 months, um, the capability of a microprocessor doubles. And this technology I'm showing you here is beating Moore's laws by three times. And this is how really this field now has earned the respect of the semiconductor industry that they're saying, wow, there is something going on. And this will be eventually coupled with a multi-billion dollar market because what I'm showing you here does allow to sequence a human genome within a week. Yes. I'm going to uh, just repeat the questions from now on so we get them on tape. The question was, what, which department so this was, at Penn State? This was bought, uh, the instrument is uh, within the Center of Comparative Genomics in the Department for uh, Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And this was bought um, mostly with when uh, I came here and I used my startup money. I was running a sequencing laboratory in Germany that used the old technology. And so I pretty much had to make the decision whether I would restart on proven grounds or I would jump into the cold water. Are you funding for universities? Uh, yes, uh, a university at uh, tobacco settlement money uh, uh, came some of that, but it was pretty much um, um, money coming from a plant professor in my lab, and this is what bought the instrument. I call this my half million dollar bet because it could have awfully gone wrong. Yes. We have a question up front. No. The question was, are all the machines from the same company? No, there's now, uh, particularly since this year, there is a, f a very f uh, fierceful competition oh, between it. what stocks to buy. <laughs> yes. The, the, the good stock you cannot buy. By the time it, there's initial public offering, it's too late. That's, that's my advice. <laughs> So what these machines allow us to do is to sequence those circles with high confidence, just with sprinkles of data, and then more sprinkles of data, and then tons of data. And now we just have truckloads of data. This is how this whole thing has moved on over the last five years. And what you now need um, to see here is each of those boxes here is a different mammoth. Remember those hairs that people send from all over the world? And we used each of those uh, different hairs coming from a different animal. And then we sequenced the complete circle. And every, every vertical bar that you see here tells you that is a difference between the one mammoth and the other mammoth. And this tells us just overall how different were mammoth. And this is quite, you can ask yourself, how different are we here in this room from one another? But our research, because it's old, also allows for another question. How different were animals and individuals through time? How different were they 10,000 years ago? How different were they 50,000 years? And so this is the third dimension of our research that we do, that we can look back in time. And because the mammoth has the same generation time as we do, we, we can grow to 70, uh, 80, 90 years. It is a very bad example for an, uh, the, experiment, uh, the experimentator because you have 
in your lifespan, you can also look at one generation of elephants. And they get more different over time? They get more different over time. And this is the underlying principle of evolution. So, if you look at this here, you can instantly see that there are very few differences among them, which is important, because one of the uh, uh, hypotheses that we had was those animals went extinct because they couldn't change fast enough against this changing climates, um, pathogens that were plaguing them, um, new hunters, human hunters coming in. And so usually the solution that uh, biology provides is that the solution already exists somewhere in the population. One of those animals already has it right without knowing it. And then this is then eventually what is selected for and why this uh, population will do well based on those individuals that already have the right answer in their genome. And so when we looked at this, we, we thought that's not a lot. Particularly, it's not a lot going through 50,000 years. At the same time, we see three of them look very different. But if you look among the three, they again are very similar to one another. And that plot here is what led us to discover that there were two groups of mammoths. And the ones here are the ones who died out 10,000 years ago. And the ones here are the ones who died out 45,000 years ago. And this is now the nice correlation that we can make is because we know the age of those samples, we can say after 45,000 years ago, we don't see any of them anymore. And as a small comfort for us is this gets us off the hook for the extinction 45,000 years ago because there were no people living in Siberia 45,000 years ago. So the earliest traces of humans in Arctic regions in Siberia are 22,000, 23,000 years. So what we get from that, we can make uh, a tree saying African elephants, um, Asian elephants, and then uh, this is all the, the mammoths from 10,000 years ago, and then there's the small group of animals 45,000 years ago. That was one of our big discoveries that we can, and none of the paleontologists having worked on this for the last 200 years, saw that. So the genetics and looking at the DNA allowed us to find the differences of two groups of mammoths. And we don't understand. They lived in the same region. So there's no reason. It's not like the one group was separated through a mountain or a river or an ocean from the other ones. They lived in the same regions and they stayed separate from one another. Probably they didn't like one another. I don't know. This slide only I want to show you is that we move then on from sequencing the uh, tiny little circle to sequencing the entire genome. So whatever is in that nucleus that I showed you that takes up so much space in the cell. And this was something, even in 2005, the people who were involved in our research, even my co-author said, we will not be able to sequence an extinct animal across all its chromosomes. Three years later, we published it, and uh, it was amazing. This shows you how huge the revolution is that's happening with this technology. And here we have one sample that is 18,500 years old. 
And this one is like the most brilliant sample that we found. This was the big ball of hair that we could so well decontaminate that 90% of the DNA that we got out of those hair was actually from mammoth. And before we could show this, usually you would find like 1% or 2% of the DNA in a bone or in, in, in some material from an, a dead animal would be from... Yes, but also in um, the whole concept with the bone. See, the problem with the bone is a bone is light. And it is light because it has a gazillion of holes in it. It's like a sponge. And it has an infinite surface. And as an animal dies, the bacteria that are living in the guts, so this is gross, the bacteria living in the guts, they eventually help to degrade the remains of the animal. And then in this process of putrefaction, they move eventually, if it's all eaten, they move into your bones. Then they die and they deposit their own DNA on top of the DNA that's in the bone. And this is why you might end up having 99% bacteria and you only have 1% from the bone. And this is why the hair was such a great idea. Here, look at this one. This one is 59,000 years, let's be generous, 60,000 years. And it is only 60% is from the mammoth. But if you consider the age, I think this is stunning. That you can have an animal, and this is the one from the other group. So we have now, um, over the entire genome, we have information from these two animals, the one from the group that died 10,000 years ago and the other one that died uh, 45,000 years ago. Okay, that allowed us to build those trees. And what is interesting, and we don't know why that is, but around six million years ago, something interesting must have happened. Because this is the time when all uh, for example, the primate species were branching from one another. This is when the gorilla branched off and the chimp and the bonobo, uh, the humans, the Neanderthals. So this is pretty much the interesting time here, um, six or uh, seven million years ago. And interestingly, the same thing happened with the elephants. It's called a, a trichotomy. The elephant split in a three-way, giving rise to African elephant, Indian elephant, and the mammoth. And then we find our two groups here. And despite our group here, our split here, is three times as old as the one between humans and Neanderthals, there are still paleontologists who are arguing with us whether these two mammoths are different groups of species, whether they might be even different species. Just imagine somebody tells you you're the same like a Neanderthal. You probably wouldn't take it well, right? <laughs> And so what we're trying to say is, based on our information that we have here, those two mammoths were three times more different than a human and a Neanderthal. At the same time, we can show that the rate of evolution that happened in the six million years is only half in elephants than it is over humans, and it is double in mice and rat. And that has to do with the bigger you are, the longer you live. And this makes fewer generation over the six million years. And this is then what eventually results into 
the rate of evolution that we look at. Stefan, we have some children and teens in the audience, and I want to make, encourage them to ask their questions, and we have a question right here. Why is there elephants still alive and there's no woolly mammoths? That, the answer is we probably don't know, but the idea is ever so often, the climate change, it goes from being very, very hot to being very, very cold, and then it gets very, very hot again. And this takes many thousands of years. And we believe that uh, the mammoth, because it was very much used to living in the cold climate, that when it once got uh, very, very warm again, that it couldn't live anymore, for example, because it got very sick. Suddenly, there were lots of mosquitoes biting it. Suddenly. The, the frozen ground got very muddy because it got so warm, and then it had to do a lot of work uh, going through it. Or the winters might have been with a lot of snow, and suddenly, instead of being able to look at the grass and eat through the winter, it would have to do a lot of shoveling uh, the snow away that it could eat. And no, say a second. Yeah. Yeah, and it also looks like the, the mammoth was, for example, they would go there. Like, you know probably that whales travel a long distance every year. And it looks like the mammoths did the same. So when it got winter, they would wanted to go south where they could graze and eat grass. And so this migration might have become very, very difficult for them when, when the, the ground got all soggy. That was a terrific question. Thanks, Danny. Okay. If you are interested in that because a shortness of time. We have a very extensive uh, website, uh, www.mammoths.psu.edu. And there's also an art gallery with lots of uh, sketches because I think it's important uh, as a, a closing statement here on the mammoth that mammoth was like the, the, the cow of the Pleistocene. It's not clear, at least for us living in the Northern Hemisphere, how we would have done as a species without the mammoth. It provided food, it provided uh, clothes, and it was very relevant. And I think this still carries over with all the interest. I mean, you being here today is witness to that. We still have a relationship with mammoth. And this has been shown like in the cultural artifact. If you look at this one, this is an ivory carving that is about 38,000 years ago. It was found in close to tubing in Germany where uh, I last worked before I came here. And see, this is witness that our ancestors 40,000 years ago, they had a very high appreciation of that. And so if you go on the web page, you can find all those images. We have plenty of time for conversation. Do you have uh, I have more, more, I have oh. more, more slides. Okay. <laughs> um, this whole idea that I told you, looking in the past to learn for the future can be the best documented with a little story. I told you about that mammoth in 1799. It's by now the most famous mammoth. It's called the Adams mammoth after the botanist uh, Michael uh, Adams. And See, this is pretty much like what, how science works today. Uh, somebody uh, gave the report, there's a great find. And of course, they wanted to look at this. How do you get the funding? So Michael Adams had to talk to the Tsar. And the Tsar would outfit him with an expedition. It took him three years on sledge and horseback to get to the site of the mammoth. 
He then uh, excavated it, packed it on sledges, and it took him three years to get it back. It arrived as a big stinking mess, and apparently the Tsar's wife was not delighted. <laughs> but nevertheless, I think this just shows you how crucial and important this vision of that Tsar was, that he would provide the money for that, because it still is, to this date, the most complete mammoth ever found. And what is, it has been on ex, uh, ex, uh, exposition since then. And what is even more intriguing from my uh, hair story is together with the flesh and the bones and everything they found, they found 36 pounds of hair. And those pounds of hair they just put in a drawer in a Russian museum, no air condition, nothing for the last 200 years. And the museum was gracious enough to send us 0.1 gram of that hair. <laughs> and this 0.1 gram of 200 year old hair stored in a museum that is, this one is, the Adams mammoth is 35,000 years old, gave us a complete mitochondrial genome. And so this concept of having museums and genomics, let us make this new word here, museomics, which won an award as the worst new omics term in 2009. <laughs> and we, we are very proud of that. <laughs> and at the same time, I want to show you here ages. So these are all the superstars of the mammoths that you will know about from Discovery Channel. The Charkov, the Yukagir, the Fishhawk, Baby Dima. All of the samples we had, all of them have now their mitochondria or some of them even their genome sequence entirely. And then we have one sample here that we can only say is older than 60,000 years. And so what I want to remember or want you to remember at this stage, 60,000 years was like the sound barrier that we were stuck with after we did this project. And just the last three weeks, we had uh, another very interesting uh, paper published, and this was published on ancient polar bears. And again, the same story. The polar bear is the mammoth of our time. It's an Arctic animal. It is faced with threats with a changing uh, environment, and it might likely go extinct. And so what we wanted to understand is we didn't even know where the polar bear came from. People were saying the polar bear only came into existence after the last ice age, 10,000 years ago. Other people were saying, look at your tree. The polar bear must be 6 million years old, like the other big mammalian species. And so uh, we were part of an incredible endeavor, a find. And so this is a view down on Earth, directly over the North Pole. This is Greenland. Um, uh, Alaska, Canada, I, I hope you can see this somehow. It's a it's very dif uh, different view. And there is, if you watch the Golden Compass, there's this famous uh, island, Svalbard. And on a shore on Svalbard, the almost unthinkable happened. They found a fossil of a polar bear. And you might now say, what's so great about finding a bone from a polar bear? But polar bears mostly live open, over open water, which of course is frozen for most of the time. And so if they die, they're being torn into pieces by their colleagues, and their, bo their bones then eventually sink down on the ocean. At this stage, we believe there are only three, maybe four polar bear fossils found. 
and it was not clear again the anatomy of the bone would not clarify how they are related to grizzlies, how they are related to European brown bears. So that bone here was taken and shockingly enough through the strata, so through the, the layers of sediment that it was found in, it could be shown that this was between 110 and 130,000 years old. Would there be DNA in it? Isn't this too old for having DNA? And again, because this is the most ideal conservation uh, scenario on Svalbard, where it's really freezing cold all the time, we managed to get um, DNA out of it. And this again shows you the sequencing of the mitochondrial genome, that we can truly cover the entire genome. And we have doubled the age of DNA that can be sequenced from 60,000 years to probably 130,000 years. But what, this is again our way of looking at it. And so here you can see um, Asian black bears, sun bears, cave bears that went extinct a long time ago, brown bears. And what you see here is a gradient into what is a modern polar bear. And so we were asking, where in all this comparison would our old bear fit it? Was it a grizzly? Was it a polar bear? And this is the, the blue one here. And shockingly enough, that bear was a little bit of both. And what you then see here is, these are brown bears. These are ABC brown bears who live on the ABC islands, which are the southernmost region of Alaska, bordering on Canada. So these are islands uh, out on, on the shore. And what has never been understood before is that polar bears are not directly related to the brown bears and the grizzlies, but they are coming directly from that group of ABC brown bears that are only found in this location. And if you let me go back to the map, this is Alaska. This is where the ABC brown bears are. This is where our ancient polar bear comes from. So what they have done is they simply migrated in a straight line to here. And this is, if you look at it, this is exactly like the ice rink on where you always have to be spend some time on land and uh, in the winters you probably spend on ice and you hunt uh, the, the seals. The other thing is that is the most shocking news to those people who say there's no evolution. The most critique, they always say, the, the form between the one animal and the other animal that fossil doesn't exist, right? If you look here, we found one that is coming exactly from this bifurcation before the two species went apart. And so if anybody had ever doubt and uh, wanted to argue on that, they really should look at this. This is the most striking example where you can find this creature. And what was even more amazing is because polar bears are marine animals, and marine animals feed on a different food chain than terrestrial animals. And this shows in their metabolism. And then you can do an isotope analysis where you can say, you fed mostly on land or you fed mostly on sea. And we at the same time could show that this ancient polar bear was a true polar bear because it had all the marine isotopes. So we had one, a bear, that had still a lot of ABC brown bear underpinning 
but it already had the lifestyle and we knew when it lived 130,000 years ago. And now the striking news is if you look back at those peaks for maximum of ice age and a thermal intercline where it gets very warm, there was a period like ours that we live in 45,000 years ago where it was very warm and those polar bears that we see today lived through that. And it was very difficult for us to publish our research because of uh, political correctness. People did not want, the, the scientists did not want to have the news that polar bears have lived through a warming period. But what it meant is, it, does, it still doesn't mean polar bears are fine. It only meant back then, 45,000 years ago, Svalbard was a refugia where at least some of those bears survived. And if we were smart, we would make sure that this happens again. Now let me be very quick and round this up. This technology that I've shown you, sequencing old DNA, using hair, allowed us to sequence the Tasmanian tiger, the one that went extinct in 1936. Big deal, right, after I told you 60,000 years? That was attempted to do for 15 years without success, and it was the hair method that after 15 years of failure gave us the silocene mitochondrial genome. You can still see the animal and what you can see if you compare two of those animals that lived like 20 years apart from one another, very few differences here. That's something we should uh, mind. If you want to look at this, um, there's a website again here and the beautiful murals. If you go down to the Smithsonian, you can see the originals. Um, that was an animal, also the animal that we sequenced, that was in the Smithsonian Zoo in Washington in the 1930s. And then after it died, it uh, um, prepared the skin, and then we cut off the hairs from the skin, did the sequencing. Museomics. MOA. We could show that working on eggshells and bone from MOA, we can separate out all the different groups of MOA genetically. Woolly rhino. We never quite understood how the, uh, today's modern rhinos are related to one another. So this extinct woolly rhino was always said to have emerged from the Indian rhino and by getting all different materials from museums, we could show that about a million years ago, so this is a very recent separation of these animals, that most rhinos radiated from one another about a million years ago. And so this battle that has been raging in the world of ancient DNA, whether bone or even dried skin or, or dehydrated meat is the right source for DNA, and you would get sometimes surprisingly little DNA out of it, was answered by us using either hair, horn, or hooves, because they all contain keratin, the biological plastic, and so this is why we say these are the three H of uh, the ancient DNA. So if you have keratin, you can now think about the beaks of birds, claws. This is all the material. And so what we are saying is we need to do, we need to go in the museums and we need to sequence the entire museums. What do we learn? So we go from the ones that are dead to the ones that are still living. And the most interesting example is the Tasmanian devil. After the Tasmanian tiger went extinct, this is the only remaining large a carnivore not even living in mainland Australia anymore, but only living in Tasmania. And this is a very quick story. This is the story of the mammoths. This is the story maybe of the polar bear. That after the last ice age, 
you still find material all over Australia. About 1300 years ago, devils were still on mainland. Then 1788, Europeans arrived. This, uh, until the, the, the 1900s, the devils were hunted as the Silocene. They could have already faced the same fate as the Tasmanian tiger. Then in 1936, the Silocene went extinct. Good on us, we even realized in 1941, let's make sure that this is not going to happen again with the Tasmanian devil. And then in 1996, a tourist photographed a Tasmanian devil that had just a horrible uh, facial cancer tumor in his face. And then it was not until 2004, until scientists realized that this was actually not some freak accident of nature, but this was an infectious disease. And now in 2006, 10 years after the first discovery, 60% of the population is wiped out. And in 2008, they are um, classified as extinct. Here you can see the, the, the tumor growing out of the face. And this is being, it's a, um, a skin graft. And just imagine you shake hands with somebody, a few skin cells from your hand move over to the other person, the other person gets cancer. Stefan, we have 10 minutes left, and right. I just want to give you a heads up, because we right. do want to take questions. And so we look, we go back to the museums, and now we ask how much diversity is left in those Tasmanian devils. You can see here, compared to the mammoths, very, very little. And what we have done is we now, using this information, found out how all the Tasmanian devils in Tasmania are related to one another. And unfortunately, the Tasmanians have used only this group here as a safety population for breeding. So they are breeding the wrong animals. And what we are trying, what we are saying is talk to us, the molecular scientists, because we believe we can tell you better what to breed. And what does this all mean? All the gray ones here are the ones that are extinct. And you can see that who is endangered or extinct has a very low biological diversity. And some of them have, like the wolves, have a very large diversity, which we are saying makes you robust. And so the final model on which I will close is three things matter when it comes to extinction. And this is like the, the choke from your realtor. It is habitat, habitat, habitat. Because if you don't have the space for the species, it does not matter whether you have the diversity. The large whales are a great example for that. If you have the population size, you say, what are you worrying about? We still have 50,000 elephants. And they're all the same. Then a single disease wipes through them, and they're gone. And so these are the three columns that we push when we say, we have to have the space. We have to have the population numbers. But like with the Tasmanian devil, don't breed the wrong ones. You need to make sure that the genetic diversity is there. And this genetic diversity we learn by looking back in time. And this is this concept of museomics. And I'll close here just to give you a very brief overview. This is, of course, not all my work. This is lots and lots and lots of people who have contributed to this. A lot of this was funded by companies, Roche 454, and uh, Penn State has put a lot of money into this. And this is all museum curators. And this is it. Thank you for your attention. So I know you have questions. We're going to, if I can reach you, I'll pass you the mic. And if not, I'll repeat your question. You, you already had a question, so I'm going to go over here. Yes, uh, uh, doctor, whoop. doctor, you mentioned the uh, 
early on in your talk that the main extinction 10,000 years ago is something we really don't know about. And I wonder what you think of this recent History Channel report that said the reason we don't know about it is that because it was an astronomical event that yes. hit the ice sheet yes. and left no crater. But they recently discovered a layer yes. indicating this event With in Delmarva. Uh, nanodiamonds. Yeah, nanodiamond, right, and that right. it not only wiped out all large mammals, including the mammoth, it wiped out all the early humans who were in North America. This is why there, uh, it, it sort of resolves the question of why there seem to be two different human populations, uh, Indian populations in North America. What, what do you think of that? Uh, I think, in principle, the concept would work. But for example, the one thing you said about the early humans clearly does not work. So this is in conflict. Humans, the same humans who still lived, the moderns, Cro-Magnon, they still were there before that event happened. Because they are very specific when it happened. They say it's around 8,500 before now. And the Cro-Magnon population has not changed before and after. In principle, I could see that happened. I have seen this uh, evidence for the nanocrystals. At the same time, people are undecided. And in, to their credit, when the large crater in Yucatan was discovered first, everybody said, it doesn't matter. And it took 25 years until this became our accepted hypothesis. And maybe we will need a few more years until this is really sorted out. And we have a question over here. Stefan, does your work have implications for human health? Yes, absolutely. And if I take that graph over here, you can see if you are of European descendant, you're pretty much like a mammoth. You have about 20, you have about 20 changes in your mitochondria, which on an overall scale is not great. And we just recently, um, in February, published the first uh, Afri Southern African genomes. And what you can show here is this is the genetic diversity of Europeans. This is the genetic diversity that we find between Bushmen living in Southern Africa. And these are people who live in walking distance. They don't share the language. They can't even talk to one another. And they are up to five times as divergent than we are. And this is the reason, this is one of the reasons that, that we believe we are such a resilient species. It's very hard to get rid of us. And one of them is where we are genetically so diverse, even compared to, uh, to the other large mammals that are around. And this is one of the reasons why we made it to the poles, to any regions on the planet. So it looks like the Europeans are more subject to extinction than the Bushmen. Yeah, but we are, we are many. It seems to me that uh, evolution is sort of frozen in the human population because we have a very definite idea of what it is to be human. No. And I've always thought, boy, it'd be great if I had four arms. But I'll bet you if I had four arms when I was born, they'd cut off two of them. Evolution <laughs> is never frozen. The only thing, by having become 6.8 billion, we pretty much have done all the experiments with ourselves. Pretty much every variant that is viable to live probably lives somewhere on this planet already. We have another question over here. Oh, okay. Um, when you look at the, um, when you calculate the age of the various fossils, 
Do you do that by um, like evolution in the genome, or do you by radiocarbon dating, or how do you come up with the dates? There are several means, and that's actually an excellent question. The radiocarbon dating is the most terrific method, but it only has a time window. If you have the very, very best mass specs, you have a time window until 60,000 years. So if you go post-carbon dating, then you have to use either uh, fluorescent methods, where you look at uh, fluorescence in minerals. We have a question over here. Just hold it close to you. So I know relatively recently there had been some uh, hopes of uh, looking at reviving extinct species, and the thylacine specifically was a fairly large Australian project. Right. How does your work impact that, and what do you think the potential is in the very near term? I know it, you're right, anything beyond five years, it's a wild guess anymore <laughs> because technology changes so fast. Yes. But. Um, a lot of has been written about this, and I think there is a very clear path of accomplishing such a goal. So whenever somebody said it cannot be done, you cannot resurrect a mammoth, only two months later, the obstacle that was cited was resolved. And my guess is, within my lifetime, we will see resurrected species. And it will not be because we are actively pursuing it. It will be because it is a side product of what we are already doing on a daily basis with farm animals. I mean, pretty much every calf that gets born today is in some way the product of uh, genetic engineering or, or uh, other medical uh, techniques. This young lady has a question for you. Would you say that um, the woolly mammoth died because of climate loss or people hunting them? See, that is a very good question. I think it's obvious to think about that it was human hunters. And luckily for me, I did this work in Africa working with those humans. And I have experienced how elephants are being hunted and provided for food. And if you see how many people are fed with a single elephant, and if you think about how many people lived at this time, all they would have to do is eating elephants all day. Like, you want the hamburger? You go and kill a mammoth. And if you have stood yourself in front of an elephant with a spear, with nothing between you, you know how intimidating it is to looking at an elephant. And this is why I personally believe that hunting was not the reason. And another argument for that is, for example, north of here, there were uh, traces where they showed that the indigenous people sank the carcasses that they hunted in lakes that had like 40 degrees. And they had a lot of tannin to maintain the meat. Why would you spend such an effort in maintaining the carcass and eating from it? for months and months and months, if it's so easy to just go and kill one, get a fresh one. And for that reason, yes, I truly believe it was the changing in the climate and not the hunting that resulted in this. And of course, if the, in the end there were very few mammoths left, then maybe the humans were a factor. But as long as there were millions of them, I don't think so. We are out of time, but I would like to ask you to join me in uh, thanking Dr. Schuster for a very fascinating discussion.
and uh, present you with your research on Plug Mug. All right, thank you very much. <laughs> and please join us next week, Wednesday, 12 to 1, when we'll have Dr. Peter Wilf uh, talking about the fossil rainforests of Patagonia. And it will be another interesting and lively conversation. And do pick up your copy of Research Penn State with the cover story about uh, Dr. Schuster and Dr. Uh, Webb Miller's Miller. work. Yes, and, and I should also say Webb Miller was uh, an integral part of that and this, all the project that I told you about, uh, he participated in. And if you would like to read more as well as the website that Dr. Schuster mentioned, you can go to rps.psu.edu, that's our website, and we have some articles about this uh, fascinating research there. So hope to see you again. Thanks for turning out and have a great day. and ask our questions directly to them. So we're pleased for that opportunity and we're glad to see such a great turnout today for a very exciting topic. Um, I will mention that uh, the, we have a Research Penn State Magazine on the table in the back and this uh, research that we'll be hearing about today is the cover story. So please make sure you pick